This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, Don't follow the example of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands, and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters." And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you, for you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the teeniest amount income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you don't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. This morning, we're in week two of this series we began last week called Obstacles to Belief, in which we're looking at the five biggest obstacles that people who would maybe like to become Christians but can't, the the things that trip them up, the things that get in their way. So uh, last week we looked at exclusivity and arrogance, something that bothers a lot of people, which is, well, how can Christianity claim to be the one true religion? This week we're looking at at a big one, which uh, the title for the the sermon this morning, the, the label I've stuck on it, is Moral Inferiority. And what this is about is, uh, actually the, the best way to think about it is hopefully you all saw the, the uh, best picture from this year, Spotlight. If you haven't seen it, you, you got to see it. And there's a conversation in that movie that nails exactly what we're talking about this morning dead on. So there, uh, if, you, if you don't know, if you haven't seen the movie, it's uh, the story of when the Boston Globe first broke the the scandal of all the sexual abuse in the uh, Archdiocese of Boston, uh, priests and, and minors. So this is in 2002. And uh, there, there's these two reporters 
in the movie that are part of the team that expose the story. They have a conversation toward the end of the movie. So one of the uh, reporters is played by Mark Ruffalo. The other one is Rachel McAdams. And they're, they're talking, and the Rachel McAdams character says, you know, I, I was trying, while we were writing the story, I kept trying to go to Mass with my grandma, because I've always gone to Mass with my grandma. It's just our, our thing together. And she says, finally, I just had to give up. You know, I, I couldn't go anymore, because the deeper I got into the story and how bad and how ugly it was, I just felt like I couldn't be around the church anymore. And the Mark Ruffalo character says, you know, I feel the exact same way. I, they're both lapsed Catholics. And so he, he said, I stopped going to church a long time ago, but the funny thing is, even though it sounds kind of corny, I always thought that I would go back someday. I always kind of wanted to go back to church someday. And now because of this, I feel like I can't anymore. It's exactly what we're talking about this morning. I'd like to be a Christian, but when I look at, at the church, at all the ways that the church has let people down, and all these terrible things the church has done throughout history, how, how could I be a part of something like that? Really what it is, if you want to broaden it, it's not about any one scandal. What it's about is, is moral bankruptcy, essentially. You know, isn't the whole point of religion to, to become a better person. And if, if Christianity doesn't do that, if it doesn't make people better, in fact, if in some cases it makes people worse and gives people a way of covering over their badness and getting away with it, well, then why would I want to be a part of that? You can even move from the institutional church to individuals. Because what you might also think, what I've heard people say, is you know some of the worst people I know are so-called Christians. Some of the most annoying people I know are, are so-called Christians. So why would I want to be part of this thing where the, the end result, the product, is something I don't even like? That's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, moral inferiority. The moral inferiority of the church or of, of Christians individually. And I want to respond to that objection by making three points, three sections to this morning's sermon. So first, religion poisons everything. Second, the only antidote to religion is faith. And third, Christians are sick people. So those are the three sections of this morning's sermon. First, religion poisons everything. Second, the only antidote to religion is faith. And then third, Christians are sick people. We'll take those one at a time. There'll be the three sections of this morning's sermon. So first, religion poisons everything. And hopefully you recognize that phrase taken from the, the late Christopher Hitchens, who, uh, you know, there's, the, there's these three guys in particular that have kind of been the, the big new atheist, Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the, the evolutionary biologist, and Sam Harris. Of the three, I, I like Hitchens the best. I think he's the most interesting. And his book was titled, his best-selling book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. What's interesting is that I would disagree vehemently with the title, God is great, and we're going to talk about that later. But I would agree with the subtitle. Religion does poison everything. And if it surprises you that I would say that as a Christian minister, it shouldn't surprise you. Because the most devastating, the most savage critic of religion that has ever lived, the most acerbic, the most caustic, the most angry critic of religion that has ever lived 
is Jesus Christ. Now, you think about all these great critics of religion in our day, Dennett and Hawkins and Harris and Hitchens, or for that matter, all the great critics of religion throughout history, Voltaire and Marx and Nietzsche and Freud, none of them has anything on Jesus. In fact, most of them were actually just footnotes to Jesus, just spinning something Jesus had already said and taking a page from his playbook. Nobody hated religion more than Jesus. His main cause while he was on earth was this anti-religious crusade, which is why it's so ironic. One of the great ironies of history is that Jesus is remembered as a religious figure. Because he was on the opposite side. The people that killed him were religious figures. The only people he got angry at were religious figures. So it, it makes no sense. It'd be like if Ronald Reagan was remembered as this great socialist. Or you know, if Lincoln was remembered as this guy that wanted to expand slavery. Jesus was against religion. Religion, there's a Greek word for religion. The only time it's used in the New Testament, it's used in a negative sense. It's used as a bad thing. Jesus was against religion. You see that all throughout the Gospels. Uh, it's on every page. But you, you see it in a distilled form in this passage that I want for us to look at together. This morning, this passage you heard read from Matthew 23. Because here, you know, normally when Jesus talks, he's pretty controlled. You know, he, he tells stories. He communicates indirectly. He's very gentle. He has a sense of humor. But there's this, this remarkable place in Matthew 23 where he just loses it. He just snaps. And he goes on this tirade. And what I want us to do is I want us to walk through it together, paragraph by paragraph, to show you that any problem you have with the church is a problem that Jesus has with the church and something that he already said a long time ago. So uh, pull out your programs if if you got them. And on the back, there's this passage, this speech that Jesus gives. Like I said, less of a speech and more of a rant. And I want us to to go through this together. So if you start at the beginning, he says, don't follow the example of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. So stop right there. Let's just make sure we know who we're talking about here when he says the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. These are the clerics. These are the pastors. These are the people that are in charge of the religious institutions. And he says, don't follow them. Don't follow their example. Why? First thing is for they don't practice what they teach. So that's the first charge that Jesus levels against religion. Jesus says the first reason that religion poisons everything is because of hypocrisy. And that's going to be something you're going to see throughout this, this rant. Moving on, then he says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. So here the charge is making people feel guilty by giving them these, these rules that are too hard to keep. I don't know if you saw that on Friday the Pope came out with this big document and, you know, there's a lot of debate about, well, what did he say and what did he didn't say? But what's clear, what everybody agrees on is the tone. And the tone of the document is right in line with Jesus' criticism of religion right here. He's criticizing his own church for making life harder on people, not easier. He says, look, life is hard enough as it is. And we have all these rules that we then put on top of people to make it harder. He says, that, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. So that's the second charge Jesus has against religion. Third is this uh, charge of that religion gives people a superiority complex. So look what he says next. He says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. 
So the prayer boxes, that was kind of a custom in that day. But basically what he's talking about here is uh, these uniforms, these outward, physical, on-your-clothes ways of distinguishing yourself religiously from other people, which is essentially you know, what a clerical collar is or a nun's habit is. And Jesus says, don't do that. And then continuing on from there, even worse, he says, they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. Don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And it's just remarkable. The church has flat out ignored Jesus' teaching on this point, like he, didn't, like he never said it. Because most priests go by Father, the exact word that Jesus prohibited. This is why I prefer to not be referred to as Pastor Ryan. You know, if you call me that by accident, it's fine. I'm not going to, like, tell you you're wrong. But I, it's, it's just Ryan, because I'm no holier. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, you know, but <laughs> if you need evidence, just talk to Brittany, my wife. I'm, I'm no holier than anybody else. So Jesus says, don't use these special titles. And the, the, the way that religion poisons everything is by setting some people up above others. Continue on from there, this is a, a great one. His fourth charge is missionary imperialism. He says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. And this is something you've seen all throughout the history of the church, where you think, well, we have the truth, and so, because they don't have the truth, those, those savages, those barbarians, we can go and take their land, or we can go and make them slaves, but they'll be better off for it because we'll teach them about Christianity. And Jesus says, well, here's the problem with that, is that you're only going to be able to turn them into a different version of yourself, and you're already a child of hell. So if, the, if your plan is, oh, I'm going to make them good like me, well, that's not going to work, because you're not good. Missionary imperialism, going and taking land or taking people in the name of the gospel truth, when really you're, you're just turning them into a worse version of yourself. Number five, I really like this one. I'd call this one illogical reasoning. He says, blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And what he's saying here is, he says, one of the ways that religion poisons everything is that in religious contexts, you can get away with saying things that make absolutely no sense. You know, just nonsense. And anywhere else, if you said it anywhere else out on the street, people would say, that makes no sense. But because you say it in church, everybody's like, oh, he's got a point. And Jesus says, you got to stop doing that. This, this illogical reasoning. Well, we were going to do this, but not this. These distinctions that don't make sense to anybody else except you and your little religious bubble. Number six, the sixth charge he levels against religion is focusing on small ritual obligations to the exclusion of major societal concerns. If you look there, he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income 
from your herb gardens. So let me just stop right there and explain that. For those of you that don't know what a tithe is, it's this biblical commandment that everybody has to give 10% or at least 10% of everything they make to God. So you get to keep 90% and you give at least 10% back to God. And what Jesus is saying is, okay, so you, uh, he, this actually happened. Um, and literally what it says there is you tithe your mint and your cumin. So you, you got these Pharisees and they know about the commandment to tithe. You've got to give a tenth of everything. And so they, they go to their, their herb garden, you know, where they're growing mint for the, the kitchen. And they say, well, nine mint leaves for me, one mint leaf for God. And Jesus says, well, there's nothing wrong with tithing, but you're doing that and then you're ignoring the, the bigger scriptural commands about justice and mercy. So here you are, you know, counting out your mint leaves when the poor are being oppressed, when there are people coming to you for the forgiveness of sins and you're letting them wallow in their guilt instead. And the degree to which God hates this is impossible to overstate because this is, Jesus here is just picking up on a strain that's already in the prophets, the, the old ancient Hebrew prophets. And what God says in the prophets is he says, I, I've gotten to the point where I, there's nothing I hate more than your worship services. Of all the things I hate on earth, the thing I hate the most is your worship services, where you come and sing these stupid songs and give your stupid little offerings, and then you go and cheat people the rest of the week and don't care for the poor and don't show mercy. He said, stop singing your songs. Stop giving your offerings. Just do the thing that I told you to do. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The way the religion can poison things is by making you focus on these small ritual obligations instead of the deeper societal obligations. Number seven is using external purity as a smokescreen to distract from deep character flaws. Look what he says here. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. And then he he goes on to say, you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And what a religious mindset does is it says, well, how can we look good? How can we look like righteous people? How can we look like holy people? And so we'll do all those things that make us look good, including going to the soup kitchen. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with going to the soup kitchen. You should go to the soup kitchen. We'll go to the soup kitchen, and we'll make sure to read our Bible 15 minutes a day, and this and that and the other. And inside, he says, you're, you're consumed by greed, and you're consumed by self-indulgence. What good does it do to clean the outside of the cup when the inside of the cup, which is the part you drink from, is so filthy? The last one, which we didn't have time to, or space rather, to fit on your program, the last thing he accuses religion of, the way he says religion poisons everything, is he says it, it makes you, at its, at its logical extension, at, at religion at its absolute worst, can actually make you willing to marginalize and condemn and even kill people who don't believe like you. And this obviously is the greatest criticism of those outside of religion, of religion, is this idea of religious wars and and killing heretics. And Jesus talked about that in Matthew 23. He said, you killed these prophets. You killed these prophets that came with these messages just because they didn't believe like you do. 
It's what the religious mindset does. That's the first section of the sermon, which is that religion poisons everything. And before Christopher Hitchens said that, Jesus did. So now let's move on to the, the second section of the sermon, which is that the only antidote to religion is faith. Secondly, this morning, the only antidote to religion is faith. Because what you, you might be thinking after all that, and what a lot of people have said after all that, is, okay, well, so then let's just do away with God. You know, if it, if it causes all those problems, if the religious mindset poisons everything in that way, and even Jesus himself admits it, then let's just do away with God. And people have been saying this for a long time. Uh, you know, the, it, to think of a, a popular example of it, John Lennon's song, Imagine. This is 1971. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine it's just this life only. Think of all the people living for today. Think of all the people living life in peace. If we just got rid of God, if we just got rid of this idea of heaven and the afterlife and the supernatural, then everybody could just live in peace. And you know, I, I hate to disparage the great John Lennon, but it, it is crazy how naive that idea is, how inane it is, how ignorant it is. Because we already tried that in the 20th century. You know, you, you'll hear people say sometimes, um, even like, so there's this line in um, George Carlin's routine on the Ten Commandments, which is otherwise a great routine, but there's this line where he says to thunderous applause. You know, people go crazy when he says this. He says, more wars have been started in the name of God than for any other reason. Yeah. Well, it's just crazy how false that is. It's just completely false. You can refute that with three names, Hitler, Stalin, Mao. The history of the 20th century is what it looks like when you have God taken out of the picture. What Dostoevsky said is, if God is not, everything is permissible. Anything goes. And that's exactly what you saw in the 20th century. You know, there's this encyclopedia that they put together, that these guys tried to put together, of every known conflict in the history of mankind, and about 10% of them, one out of ten had some sort of religious component to them. So getting rid of God is not the answer. Why? Because all of those problems that we just went through with religion, those problems will still be there in the human heart, even if you get rid of God. So go back to what we were talking about, this idea of killing people who don't believe like you do. Well, that's what all those revolts were about, You know, the communist revolution. That's what uh, Nazism and totalitarian state in, in Germany was about, killing people that don't believe like us. You don't have to have God to do that. Or this idea of superiority, this idea of thinking that you're right and everybody else is wrong. This idea of imperialism, of imposing yourself on others. See, if you get rid of God as a way of trying to deal with religion, what you end up with is just a godless religion. You, you end up with religion still. Everything bad, everything ugly about the religious mindset, just without God. Because anything can become a religion. Atheism can become a religion. Science can become a religion. And what all these religions in the broader sense have in, in common is pride. This sense of superiority, this sense of thinking that we've got the answer and everybody else is wrong. And getting rid of God doesn't fix that problem. So what is the answer to that problem? If Jesus was an anti-religious crusader, if Jesus came to combat religion, to do away with religion? What was his answer? The message that Jesus preaches in the Gospels, in fact, the, the message of the Bible, the, the great virtue of the Bible, 
is this thing called faith. And faith is not like a, a different flavor of religion. It's not like a euphemism for religion. Faith is actually the exact opposite of religion. You know, people think of those words as, as synonyms. They go together, faith and religion. But in the Bible's view of reality, faith and religion are on opposite poles. So what's the difference? What's the difference between religion and faith? Religion is when you try to be really good for God so that God owes you and so that other people are impressed with you. Faith is when you trust God to be really good to you even though you realize that you don't deserve it. Let me say that again because that, that's the whole point of this morning. That's the message in a sentence. Religion is when you try really hard to be good for God so that he owes you, so that he has to do good stuff for you, and so that other people are impressed with you. Faith is when you trust God to be good to you, even though you realize you don't deserve it. And I could try all morning to try to get you to see the difference between those, but the best way by far is to look at this story that Jesus tells where he pits the two against one another. So we're going to put this up on the screen. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. I want you to look at this with me. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's religion. That's the definition of religion. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So to the religious people, Jesus told this parable. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other tax collector. Just a little bit of historical background. Tax collectors in that day, it was a dishonest profession because the only way you made money as a tax collector was by skimming off the top. So what you see in the Bible is uh, tax collectors and prostitutes actually grouped together as these two uh, examples of the most immoral professions. So there's, there's two people that go up to, to pray, a Pharisee, a pastor essentially, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's religion and faith. Religion, exalting yourself, because we've got the truth, we've got the answer, and I'm going to be really good and prove to you all what a good person I am. And faith, which is admitting I'm not a very good person, but I'm trusting God to be good to me anyway because I know that he's merciful. And you see how it's the antidote to religion? If religion is about pride, if religion is about self-sufficiency and self-righteousness, faith requires humility. It requires being able to say, I can't do this on my own. All faith is is just throwing up your hands and saying, I don't want to live life on my own anymore. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm tired of trying to prove to everybody that I'm good enough. I'm tired of trying to make my life work on my own. I'm going to just trust God. But it's the exact opposite of religion. And when the church goes wrong, 
is when it veers back toward religion. When it veers back toward all this man-made stuff of setting up rules and trying to prove to everybody else how righteous you are. And when it goes right is when it comes back toward faith. Toward remembering that it's about God's mercy, not about our righteousness. And we've got to throw ourselves on him. So that's the second section of the sermon. The only antidote to religion is not to get rid of God. The only antidote to religion is faith, true faith. Now at the time we have left, let's move to the third and final section of the sermon, which is the Christians are sick people. Third and finally this morning, Christians are sick people. And this last section, what I want to do is turn and focus more on the individual. You know, we said at the outset, two reasons you might have for kind of not wanting to be a Christian. One is the institutional church and all the mistakes it's made. But the other reason you might not want to be a Christian is, well, I know these people that are Christians, they go to church. They're not especially impressive people, so why would I want to be like them? You know, if that's the product, then is there really anything to this? What I want to say in this last section is that we shouldn't at all be surprised if, on average, people outside the church, non-Christians, non-believers, are more moral and more virtuous than people inside the church, which is absolutely the case. You know, just as a, as a matter of fact, hopefully you realize it's just from the people you know. This is absolutely true. If I just take myself. I mean, we can probably find a better standard bearer for Christianity than me. But if I just compare myself to any random atheist living in the city, there's a very good chance that the atheists will be a lot more morally mature in all sorts of different areas. They may be more patient than me. They may be kinder than me. They may be more selfless than me, this, that, and the other. And you say, well, doesn't that prove that there's nothing to Christianity? You know, if you can be so good without Christianity, if a lot of Christians aren't even that good, then doesn't that, that show there's nothing to it? But it doesn't because it, it's unfair and sort of nonsensical to compare any two people. Any two people comparing to one head-to-head is always going to be comparing apples and oranges. So C.S. Lewis has a good example that he uh, talks about in Mere Christianity of this. He says, think about like... Um, whitening toothpaste. He says, it, what, what you're doing here is essentially, it's like you, you have a person that uses whitening toothpaste. Whitening toothpaste is Christianity. And just remember that. That's the message in a sentence. Whitening toothpaste is Christianity. Uh, you, you have this person that uses whitening toothpaste and you have this person that doesn't. Okay. And he says, it's like you compare the two people to each other and you say, well, look, the person that doesn't use the whitening toothpaste actually has whiter teeth than the person who uses it. Therefore, the whitening toothpaste doesn't work. It's ineffective. And what Lewis says is that makes no sense because you're not taking into account where the two people started. So what if one of the two people naturally had whiter teeth to begin with, which, which they did? He says what you have to do is not compare any two people to each other. You have to compare one person to where they started and where they are now. You have to look at the trajectory of an individual life. And that's how it is with morality. Because everybody starts at a different place. You know, everybody's given a different machine, so to speak, to work with. Whether that be genetically, whether that be in terms of your early experiences. The, the truth is that, that some people have a head start when it comes to being a kind, decent, moral person. 
And so the, the claim of Christianity has never been, well, it's going to make every Christian better and more moral than every non-Christian. The, the claim is just that it's going to make you better than you would have been otherwise. Which is, uh, that's, this is the idea that I use to comfort myself when I start to doubt. You know, because when I look at my own life sometimes, I'd say that uh, people have asked me before, what makes you doubt the existence of God more than anything else? The only thing that really makes me doubt the existence of God is when I look at myself and see how far I've come, which isn't very far in the time I've been a Christian. And I think, well, if God is real, shouldn't I be a lot better than this by now? You know, shouldn't I have, have developed a lot more morally and spiritually, personally, by now, if, if God is real? But you can't compare yourself to anybody else. You don't know where anybody else started. All you can do is compare yourself to where you would have been. And the truth is, however disappointed I may be in myself now, I would have been worse. I would have been even more of a jerk if I weren't a Christian. And the same thing is true, you know, these two friends you may have in mind. Well, yeah, your your Christian friend may be less cool than your atheist friend, but think how much worse they might be if they weren't a Christian. And I think how much even cooler and even nicer your atheist friend might be if they were. So you can't compare any, any two people. But as we close, I want to press this, this uh, toothpaste example one step further and actually kind of reverse the charge and get you to see things in a different way. Because it's, it's not only the case that you can't compare any two people, but what this example also suggests is that we should actually expect that Christians are going to look worse in terms of their morality and their character than non-Christians a lot of times. Because who's going to buy the, the tooth-whitening toothpaste? Is it going to be the person that, that already has naturally white teeth? No, they're not going to need it. It's going to be the person who needs help in that department. And this goes back to this, this distinction between religion and faith that we were talking about earlier. Religion has always appealed to people who are naturally good, who find it easy to be good. Because then they, they see these rules and they think, I can keep those rules, I'll be part of that club, and then I can feel good about myself. But faith, what's the Christian message? It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter about your past, it doesn't matter where you came from. Jesus died for your sins, you're accepted, you're forgiven. Who's that going to appeal to? Not the people from good families, not the people that went to good colleges. It's going to appeal to the people who need it and who are broken down. And when they come in and join the church, what that's going to do is it's going to take the average morality score of the church way down. Which is exactly the way it's supposed to be. You know, Eugene Peterson is this pastor and professor, and he has this great example. He says, expecting Christians, people in the church, to be better than non-Christians, it, you've got it all wrong. You're thinking of the church like it's a, a health club, like it's a gym. And you expect to go and you see these people that have been working out all the time, and so they're these physical specimens, you know, they're, they're really ripped. He says, really, the church isn't a health club, it's a hospital. It's for sick people. And, you know, Peterson, of course, didn't come up with that idea. Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. Healthy people don't need a doctor. So this objection, well, why, why aren't Christians better than non-Christians, if Christianity is true? It's almost absurd. Because it's like walking into a hospital and you say, well, what is this? I mean, this hospital claims to be making people better. 
And I'm walking around and all I see is sick people. You know, the, the people in here are sicker than the people out on the street. This hospital is a joke. This is a, sh- it's a sham. You know, th- th- this doesn't make people healthy. People in here are worse off than people outside. You got it all wrong. And so you say, well, what if I'm not sick? So what you're saying basically is that Christianity is only for sick people. You know, it's only for people who need a doctor. So what if I'm not sick? Are you saying I don't need Christianity? I don't need the church? And that is exactly what I'm saying. If you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. You don't need to come to the hospital. Now, the, the scary part is everybody's sick. Some people just don't realize it. And this is what we're talking about on Easter. I don't know if you remember when we talked about, have you realized that life without God is empty? Have you run out of money yet? And some people haven't. Some people haven't figured out that they're sick. But until you do, there's no point in, in coming in. Because this is for sick people. Once you realize that you're sick too, once you realize that there's parts of you that are broken, that only God can heal, then you know what you'll, you'll stop doing? You'll stop holding up your little moral measuring stick and saying, well, the church doesn't come up to my standards, so therefore I reject the church. Because you, you realize, who are you to hold up a moral measuring stick to anybody? And what you'll also stop doing once you realize that you're sick too is you'll stop judging the people inside the church. Because before, who would want to hang out with them? Who would want to hang out with all the crazies? Who would want to hang out with all the lowlifes? There were all sorts of people during Jesus' ministry that would have loved to hang around Jesus, but they didn't want to be associated with the other people that were hanging around him. I'd love to be close to Jesus, but I want to be around all of them because, uh, you know, gross. And if you realize that you're sick too and that you're no better than any of those people, then it won't bother you anymore. And you'll remember that, wait a minute, the, the reason to become a Christian isn't because of the moral beauty of Christians. The reason to become a Christian is because of the moral beauty of Christ, which he promises to give to you if you can stop trying to do it on your own. Let's pray. God, we're not as good as we want to be, and a lot of times we pretend to be better than we are because we're embarrassed. We want to be good people. We want other people to think we're good people. And we put on a show and we judge others to make us feel better about ourselves. I pray that you would come with the message of the gospel, the message that Christ came to bring, that we are all in need of a Savior, that none of us are good enough on our own. I pray that you would come and speak to our hearts this morning, that you would show us that we are sick, even if we want to pretend that we're not, that you would show us that you can heal us, that you would point us away from religion, away from this prideful disposition of trying to be better than other people and act like we have the truth, and point us instead back to faith, back to trusting you, trusting you to be good to us, even though we haven't done anything to deserve it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.